Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Google. Online tools are helping Europeans through the pandemic. We support a Digital Services Act that creates the right conditions for recovery and growth. When Europe really needed to prove that this is not only a fair weather union, too many initially refused to share their umbrella. Hungary is no longer a democracy. We did it. Europe is strong. Europe is united. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and this is a bumper final episode of 2020. Now, we know, to put it mildly, this has been a really tough year. And we don't want to relive all of the trauma, discuss every big news story. But what we thought would be worth doing is to reflect, to talk through some of the key moments of the year, think about what stood out for us, in the hope that might help you reflect as well and take stock of the year that never stopped. And at the end of the show, we'll have a taste of a brand new political podcast coming your way in January. Coming soon, Westminster Insider, a podcast from Politico with me, Jack Blanchard. Also, as it's the end of the year and we could all use a bit of levity, we'll also bring you some outtakes from the last 12 months, which even I haven't heard yet. Uh, uh, sorry, you're going to have to bear with me for one moment. Welcome to our weekly comedy show. So I'll be listening with some trepidation. Now, just before we bring in podcast regulars, Remontaz and Matt Karnichnik for their reflections on the year, we thought it would be interesting to briefly revisit our first episode of 2020. Welcome to EU Confidential and to our first episode of 2020. And if it's not too late, Happy New Year. To hear our expectations and predictions at the start of the year, when we were joined by our UK colleague Annabel Dixon, along with Matt and Reem. Now, of course, we didn't predict everything, but we were right about some things. For example... The other big thing in Brussels this year, the MFF, the Multi-Annual Financial Framework, uh, the EU budget, the current one runs out at the end of this year. And uh, Charles Michel, the European Council president, is obviously trying to broker a deal sooner rather than later on that. But there's a, a lot of expectation, I think, that this is going to end up with the German presidency of the Council of the EU in the second half of the year. Of course, that turned into an even bigger battle when the EU tacked on a historic economic recovery fund as a result of the pandemic. Then we also reckoned it would be a big year for climate policy. I, th I thought something to single out was climate change. I think it's going to be a very interesting debate in the UK as well. Boris Johnson said today that he was going to set up a cabinet committee 
on climate change. Definitely the the new Green Deal is obviously going to be a big issue here in Brussels. The kind of key thing here is can we actually get everybody on board and and on the same page? We had this strange spectacle. And we heard just last week that EU leaders agreed to deeper cuts in carbon emissions. We were maybe more right than we could have realised with some of our words of wisdom. Well, I think, you know, if I look into my crystal ball over here and, and take the first week of the year as as a guide, I, I think people should be prepared for the unexpected, quite frankly. Yeah, well, there's some things that uh, we can't control, unfortunately. We even talked about an epidemic, but that was a special series of articles about living with HIV AIDS. So 30 years after this epidemic started, we wanted to really hold up a mirror and see what it looks like today. Of course... We didn't predict the coronavirus, which meant that some of the big events we were looking forward to didn't take place at all or took place in much reduced online form. COP26, G20 in Riyadh, the Olympics in Tokyo. So here we are, more than 70 podcasts later of various flavours. Time to look back on a tumultuous year with some audio from the key events of 2020 and some clips from our own shows through the year. With Reem Montaz in Paris, hi Reem. Hello everyone. And Matt Karnichnik in Berlin, hi Matt. Hi there. Okay, so let's just kick it off. I mean, it has been a year like no other and it began, you know, in a fairly normal way as we've heard in our uh, little introductory collection of clips there. Then, of course, we get hit by the pandemic. And one of the things that, that I remember about that is having our senior health reporter, Sarah Wheaton, on in the early days of the of the coronavirus and, and just asking her if I was going to get the coronavirus and, and how big a deal it would be if I did. OK, Sarah, so am I going to get coronavirus? I can't rule it out for you, Andrew. I'm sorry. Um, It kind of depends on where you are and where you might be going and who you hang out with. But the bottom line is if if you are um, around one of these regions of northern Italy that already is having this big outbreak, the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control is saying there is a moderate to high risk of infection. And they're also saying that it's pretty likely, almost certain, that similar kind of clusters of um, of outbreaks are going to happen around the European Union, but they're still saying that broadly, the the chance for any individual person um, is still low to moderate. The good news is you probably won't. And of get course, that at that stage, you know what we knew about the the virus was that it could be serious for some people, but for a lot of people, it would be okay. But I think what we didn't realise, what nobody realised, was the huge repercussions that the, the virus was going to have in terms of of life in general and economic life. The lockdowns, the shutdowns, the social distancing, everything that was going to come with that. You know, we did see a pretty chaotic initial response across Europe, right? I mean, we heard Ursula von der Leyen at one point going to the European Parliament and pretty much beating up on European countries for not coordinating for all doing their own thing. When Europe really needed to be there for each other, too many initially looked out for themselves. When Europe really needed an all-for-one spirit, too many initially gave an only-for-me response. 
and when Europe really needed to prove that this is not only a fair weather union, too many initially refused to share their umbrella. But it was not long Matt, how much damage do you think was kind of done to, to the EU in, in those early days and weeks where, you know, the Italians were feeling a lack of solidarity, they were hit very hard, and it just felt a little bit like everyone for themselves? Yeah, I think in the initial stages, it did huge damage, especially in Italy, as you mentioned, because there was a real sense of betrayal, I think, when all of a sudden they're told by Germany that they're not allowed to export masks to, you know, these crisis zones in Bergamo and, and the region of uh, Lombardy and so forth. That was really something, I think, that uh, opened a lot of people's eyes to just how fragile a lot of these agreements in Europe are. The first sign of, of trouble, kind of, you know, the, the wheels basically fall off. They suspended Schengen for the most part, uh, which is another controversial measure that I think a lot of people now regret and probably wouldn't do again. And, um, you know, I think, though, that the recognition that that was a mistake, and I think, you know, this was one of the key reasons that Angela Merkel agreed, as we'll discuss later, to endorse the idea for this recovery fund was that, you know, she saw how much damage the initial handling of the crisis had done. So I think it, it did initial damage, but I think that the later response kind of made up for that in a way. Right. I mean, I think we could come to that now, um, which is, as you say, after that kind of initial very wobbly response, if you like, and we do see this from from the European Union from time to time. Our colleague Paul Taylor wrote a good column at one point, I think, which was about how often in crises, initially, Europe's response is not great. It's a bit like a football team that does better in the second half than the first. And Reem, you were at that, you know, I think we can call it a historic uh, press conference at the Elysee with with Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel, where they announced this idea for a recovery fund. Pour la première fois ensemble, ce que nous proposons, ensemble, Allemagne-France, aux 27 pays membres, c'est d'une part de décider d'aller lever une dette commune sur les marchés et d'utiliser ces 500 milliards d'euros. Which then was taken up by the European Commission and expanded. Can you remember, can you cast your mind back and give us a flavor? Because I think that was a kind of hybrid event, right? But you were able to be there in person. What was it like? What was really incredible about that day is that none of it had actually leaked out to us, which is a real feat because usually we are pretty much aware of what's coming. And so both Germany and France managed to keep this huge announcement under wraps and took all of us by surprise, to be honest. And so they invited us, uh, just a handful of journalists. I think we must have been four or five journalists in the room. So it was one of those early hybrid uh, situations where Macron was there in front of us and Merkel was next to him on a screen, videoed in from, from Berlin. And, you know, that has now become completely normal for us. But back then, it, it was one of the first ones, especially for such a huge announcement. And then they spring this on us. Remontas de Politico, Monsieur le Président, Madame la Chancelière, quand on regarde le, le texte, and I remember when, you know, we were discussing uh, afterwards, you know, where do we think this is actually going to go yeah. through? Is it really going to happen? There was a lot of skepticism. People were like, this is never going to go through with the frugals. And yet here we are. That has all now become 
as they say, history. Yeah, well, I remember exactly. We we were all in contact that day. And I remember, Matt, you know, you just immediately, you know, could see the significance of this, the huge significance of this, particularly for Germany from what Merkel had done, because obviously you had covered uh, the big Eurozone uh, debt crisis in, in years gone by when this whole issue of euro bonds, the idea of, of some kind of joint debt or common debt, was was just a kind of non-starter in Germany, right? So I think it, it felt like a significant moment for you straight away as soon as you heard Angela Merkel. Europa muss zusammenstehen und deshalb geht es um die wirtschaftliche schnelle Erholung und deshalb wollen wir einen zeitlich befristeten Fonds auflegen im Umfang von 500 Milliarden Euro der EU-Haushaltsausgaben, also keine Kredite, sondern Haushaltsausgaben. Right, because her party in particular had been pushing back on any hint of Eurobond common debt issuance. You know, a lot of people would say these aren't real uh, Eurobonds because every country is responsible for for its portion of the debt. And yet it has taken Europe in a direction that would have been unthinkable a year ago, because it does put the Eurozone in particular, I think, on a path towards a fiscal union, which is what a lot of people think is necessary to preserve the euro over the long term. And it's something that, you know, conservatives in Germany, not just in Merkel's party, the CDU, but across the board are very skeptical of, including the Free Democrats. So it is a big deal because recent history, I think, has also shown us that when Europe takes a step like this, it doesn't go back. It tends to go forward. And I, I, I think that for people who welcome a more federalist approach to the EU, this is good news. For people who are very wary of these moves, uh, it's probably very bad news because they can see you know, where this is going to head over the long term. Right. And so that led to the big summit at the start of July, which again was, was very strange having to cover a European Council, which is normally an event with at least hundreds of journalists all congregated uh, into that building just off the Schumann roundabout in the European quarter in Brussels. And instead, we found ourselves covering this summit all remotely, all from our laptops, from our uh, studies, from our kitchen tables. And it was a summit that went on and on and on. I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it took four days. Yeah, at I think we were into the fifth all-nighters. day. I think it was four nights into the fifth, and we were into the fifth day. And finally, we got that announcement from Charles Michel. We did it. Europe is strong. Europe is united. We have reached a deal on the recovery package and the European budget, a marathon which ended in success for all 27 member states, but especially for the people. It's it's all a haze, like yeah. much of 2020, I have yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah. But that was the moment. And ultimately, they did get it done. And one of the things, you know, we said at the start of the year was that uh, the budget fight would be difficult and it would probably wait until the German presidency of the council before it got done. And uh, we were right about that. We just didn't anticipate all the other drama that was going to go on around it. Well, I think that's a good um, moment just to take a, a brief break and then we'll come back and talk about a couple of the other big themes of the year, uh, namely the whole battle over the EU's values and rule of law and that kind of collided with the coronavirus crisis in some ways and also look about uh, and look at a subject that I know both of you like to talk about in particular, which is, you know, Europe's role in the world, uh, foreign policy and its geopolitical ambitions. So we'll come back and talk about that in just a moment.
A message from Google. In this extraordinary year, people and businesses are asking more, not less, from technology and technology companies. That's why Google has pledged to help 10 million people and businesses find jobs, digitize and grow through easy-to-use products and training, and will keep building innovative products that serve the needs of Europeans. Europe also needs policies that support future growth. Google fully supports rules that ensure technology can contribute to Europe's recovery and future economic success. But certain proposals announced this week in the Digital Markets Act could prevent large or fast-growing companies from innovating in ways that will help people and businesses in Europe grow and prosper. Read more at g.co forward slash EU digital markets. Okay, let's continue our discussion with uh, Reem and Matt, uh, reflecting on the year just gone by. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I wanted to talk a bit about this this fault line, really, which seems to be deepening within the European Union over values, over what the EU stands for and how important those values should be. And one of the things that happened as a result of the coronavirus crisis, as we know, is that a lot of the normal checks and balances of democracy were, to a large extent, suspended. Parliaments couldn't meet as as usual. A lot of the scrutiny that, that goes on around uh, governments just didn't take place. And we saw governments obviously taking extraordinary measures. And in particular, we saw Hungary uh, basically uh, passing a law that allowed Viktor Orban's government to rule by decree. And we had um, Timothy Gartanash, uh, the academic historian, former journalist, on the podcast, and he basically declared that at that point he thought Hungary was no longer a democracy. Today, Hungary is a dictatorship. For the duration of the emergency powers, which Orban has given himself, which are without term and give him essentially the power to rule by decree, as a dictator does, think about that. We have a dictatorship which is a member state of the EU. Some time ago, in the 1970s, Jean Monnet said, we can have a dictatorship somewhere in Europe, that's entirely possible, but you can't have a dictatorship in the European community. Well, now we do. Now, of course, uh, Hungary uh, takes a different view, and and that measure was uh, later repealed. But this whole issue of values came to a head again with uh, the budget, again with this issue of how much um, payouts from the EU budget should be tied to respect for the rule of law, whether the European Commission, with the support of the Council, should be allowed to suspend payments if it thinks a country is not upholding those values. And it just feels like that's a, a festering issue, which isn't going to go away, even though they found a compromise on that specific measure. But Matt, you've just written a piece about Angela Merkel's legacy in this area on the whole question of, of rule of law. So maybe you could just give us a, a quick summary of your of your verdict there and where you see this going and how big a deal it is. I mean, is this just a, a fixation of the Brussels bubble or does it matter? No, I think it does matter. And it matters for the long term for the EU and, and for these countries because it cuts right to the core of the question of what people want from the EU, what they think it stands for, what do European citizens think it stands for, want it to stand for. And, you know, if you reflect also on the other big issue of the year of, of, of Brexit, I would say that it's also related to that because it's a question of sovereignty and how much sovereignty should the individual states have within the EU. And I think, 
you know, during the German presidency, there was a lot of hope that Merkel would somehow find a way to bring the sides together and to resolve this problem. And she did indeed uh, succeed in doing that at the last uh, summit of the year. But I would argue that she is largely responsible for letting the problems fester and get to the point where they were almost impossible to resolve peacefully, as it were. I mean, you know, Poland and Hungary were really kind of pulling out the big guns here in threatening to veto the EU budget and the recovery fund if they didn't get their way on the rule of law sanctions. And in the end, they didn't get everything they wanted, but they got a lot. And I think if you look back over the past decade or so, you can see that the Germans in particular who have more influence than any other country in Eastern Europe, more influence arguably everywhere in Europe than, um, you know, than even Brussels does in, in a lot of ways, didn't use that influence to try to rein in Viktor Orban in particular, who has long been seen as a close ally of Merkel's Christian Democrats. I think that they didn't want to believe that he was actually turning into an authoritarian. They ignored the signs, and they also we're worried because Germany has very substantial economic interests. So it is crucially important to German industry, not just the car industry. And I think that there was a lot of pressure on the German government not to go too far in pressuring these governments in ways that there would be a backlash against the corporate interests there. And that, again, led us to this moment where I would argue that there is a deeper divide now between East and Western Europe. And these fault lines um, have always been there, to be honest. And I think that, you know, because of this episode, it, it will make it all the more difficult, I think, to repair them in the coming years once Merkel is gone. Yeah, it does feel like that battle is just going to continue to rage. In a sense, we we had a kind of truce agreed, a kind of Christmas truce with this deal, which got the the budget and the recovery fund passed. But let's move on to um, foreign policy, Europe's role in the world. You know, the EU in general, our EU officials have have grand uh, ambitions. This commission was dubbed the Geopolitical Commission. Uh, They want Europe to play a greater role in in the world. You know, we've heard that uh, through this debate about strategic autonomy, the idea that Europe can kind of do its own thing independently, uh, which means in some cases at least being able to operate independently of the US, whether that's in economic terms, in, in trade terms, or or in military terms. One moment that just springs to mind for me, which I thought was was quite entertaining but made a more serious point, was when a Dutch journalist managed to gatecrash a meeting of EU defence ministers. Of course, it was a video conference. And, you know, just like us, just like everyone else, defence ministers, you know, went online, went into video conference, but they weren't able to uh, keep their video conference secure. And you suddenly had this Dutch journalist uh, popping up on his uh, black T-shirt, sitting in his office in the middle of this defence minister's meeting. You know that you have been jumping into a secret conference of the Erika yeah, yes, I'm sorry. I'm a journalist from the Netherlands. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but um, uh, uh, I'm sorry for interrupting your uh, your conference. So uh, I'll be leaving here. So uh, you know, that you, uh, a, that's a criminal offence, huh? <laughs> to me, that you know summed up the the vulnerabilities that we've all found from from moving online and doing these kind of online video conferences, but also the gap between the the EU's aspirations and reality, particularly when it comes to 
military and defence matters. As we know, the European Defence Fund got a lot less money than the European Commission wanted. And you just had this moment where a union that wants to be a bigger player in defence was not even able to hold a secure video conference of its of its defence ministers. But Reem, I think you wanted to mention in particular, I think this must have been obviously a key moment in the year for you, which was the explosion in Beirut and the French reaction to that, in particular Emmanuel Macron's decision to, in a sense, jump into the centre of that crisis, which was, you know, as you know better than any of us, a kind of multifaceted crisis, political, economic, etc., and you also travelled with, with Macron to Beirut at that time. What are your impressions from all of that? What do you take away from all of that? You know, I thought a lot about uh, that moment, that decision that Macron made. Because on the one hand, you know, he was showing the Europeans and others what uh, sort of a geopolitical, ambitious, uh, active European power perhaps can, perhaps should do without having to wait all the time for the US. But on the other hand, he's also, perhaps without really wanting to, shown in real time the limits of a middle-sized power, like most European powers are, in being able to create a space uh, between, you know, the US and sort of rival illiberal big powers. And in the in the context of Lebanon, he basically got overshadowed and caught between the US and Iran. When he got to Lebanon, he promised the Lebanese people that he could basically get the Lebanese politicians to make huge changes, huge political changes that they haven't been wanting or desiring to make for the past at least 30 years. Je vais leur proposer un nouveau pacte politique cet après-midi et je reviendrai pour le 1er septembre. Et s'ils ne savent pas le tenir, je prendrai mes In a sense, he was trying to use that crisis, as, as I understand it anyway, someone who doesn't know Lebanon like you know it, but to kind of break a stasis there, right, to, to break a kind of status quo, which was, you know, just widely considered unhealthy, breeds corruption, you know, everybody gets their slice of the pie. And he was going to use trying to kind of use this moment to kind of break that. And, and he hasn't been able to do it, right? I mean, so far. Yeah, he hasn't been able to do it. And in a way, he overpromised, underdelivered, and it is having quite some dire consequences. He's obviously not responsible for the absolute collapse of the country. In, in no way, shape or form is he responsible for that. The Lebanese are. But uh, his promises didn't help. Right. Yeah. Because there was a lot of hope around those those initial visits from, you know, ordinary Lebanese, if you like. Matt, let's talk about the transatlantic relationship. I mean, that was another theme of the year. You know, one of the things we might have seen with a different US administration is closer coordination on the pandemic. And, and said, instead, we saw, you know, the Trump administration, you know, decide to pull out of the World Health Organization. Doesn't look like that would actually happen now. But just once again, you know, pursuing a very kind of unilateralist course when you sort of and Angela I think maybe this was was typified by Angela Merkel taking the extraordinary step of basically saying no to the US president when he suggested having an in-person G7 summit how how big a moment was that do you think well you know I prefer to look forward and not backward and 
you, We're doing that in the next podcast, man. So I'm afraid you have to look back. If you insist, I think it was an important moment in the interpersonal relationship between Angela Merkel and Trump because I don't think that they've spoken much since then. And it was after that that he turned around and said, "Well, he decided to withdraw about twelve thousand troops from Germany, where there are still about forty thousand U.S. troops stationed," and that was sort of seen as by some as payback for for this slight or for an accumulation of perceived slights on Trump's part. But I, I think this whole transatlantic issue is, is an important one because here, too, you see the divide in Europe where you have what the former American Secretary of Defense referred to as the old Europe, meaning Western Europe, France and Germany, taking one view and sort of, you know, Benelux and those countries, and then uh, what he called the new Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, taking, you know, what some of us would call a more nuanced view of the situation. And they are much more not just open to, but, you know, encouraging of American influence in the region. And, you know, I, I, I suspect that that this will continue. There There isn't a real appetite in Central and Eastern Europe to have a European army to give all of these powers to Brussels when it comes to military matters. And it's exactly what Remus is describing in, in Lebanon. The reason that that doesn't work is because a French president cannot represent Europe in Lebanon or anywhere else. You would need somebody in a European capacity to go there and to have the credibility to make decisions and to send messages. And as long as you do not have a coherent foreign policy, and many would argue qualified majority voting, which would basically allow the EU to um, you know, make decisions without having unanimity among the 27 members, that is going to be virtually impossible. And I think that the European views on the transatlantic relationship are, are just one example of the cacophony that exists in Europe on foreign policy. Mm. Reem, what do you think? I mean, the, what, anything that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to mention? I think, you know, on top of the geopolitics that I really enjoy and on top of the pandemic uh, issues that we've discussed, I don't think we can end this podcast looking back on the year without talking about George Floyd. I can't breathe. Those protests, because they did cross the Atlantic, because we did see real mobilization or inspiration um, in places like the UK, in Germany, in France, in Belgium. There were big protests along those same lines. And uh, I wonder if 2020 is going to be the year of the reckoning. Obviously, we've been through uh, this before. There have been uh, similarly shocking uh, videos and moments where we've seen people of color being discriminated against in a violent way, and then nothing sort of changes. And so I, I that is one thing I will uh, sort of look out for in 2021. Are things going to start changing on that level or not? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, very much, you're right, that was one of the issues of the year. And other things continued to happen, even in among this pandemic, there were some very, very important developments on other fronts. And we'll, you know, we'll see how those further development in the year ahead. But let's, um, I wondered if we might finally, we've already talked for, for a long time, we normally try to do some recommendations 
you know, at the end. And of course, we're going to be off for a couple of weeks. So I don't know if any of you ha- or either of you have recommendations of things to read or or watch or listen to over the holiday period. One of the things I wanted to to mention, we had the very sad news the other day of the death of, of John le Carre, an author, you know, I've enjoyed for decades. And a more recent pleasure was discovering John le Carre doing audiobooks. It's a Saturday evening. I'm sitting in the Athleticus Club in Battersea, of which I am honorary. And he is a great raconteur. He does accents. He's a great mimic. He can do Scottish accents. He can do Swiss-German accents in English. He is a great uh, reader of his own stories. So I would encourage people, if you're a Lacari fan and you're, you know, wondering what to dive back into uh, at this moment, then I would actually recommend an audiobook. Matt, I know you're a fan as well. Do you got a particular Lacari favourite or anything else you want to recommend? Yeah, I would second that. And obviously the novels are all great, but one that might not be on people's radar is his own memoir, The Pigeon Tunnel, which he also reads uh, in the audiobook version, which is just a fascinating look at post-war Germany and his experiences there and beyond. And uh, he recorded that just a, a couple of years uh, before his death. So it has kind of a you know, very, very poignant feel to it. Mm. Reem, are you a Le Carre fan? I'm a huge Le Carre fan. Yes. Um, how can you not be? But I will say, so I do, I have a, another recommendation, which mm. is that one, let's try to all kind of power down from our screens. I think we've all sort of overdosed yeah. on screens this year with the Zoom and all that. And uh, one of my great escapes since I was a child, and it has continued, it's uh, looking at this sort of books that are, you know, comic books. In English, we call them comic books, but really in French, it's bande dessinée. And the French... Right, which has a much higher level, if you like, is it regarding... Much as, higher yeah, something much form more, of yeah. literature, really. Yeah. And so I am going to recommend two series, which I think our our listeners might really enjoy. The first is called Best of Enemies, uh, and it's basically three parts about the history of the relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East, starting in the 1700s. And believe me, it's worth your time. Wow. And the other is called L'Arabe du Futur, which also exists in English. And it's written by this Syrian-French author, about his own sort of childhood and growing up as a then Syrian back in Syria and then coming to France and just explaining all of these really funny cultural moments and also a great kind of history lesson. And they're wonderful. They just sort of take you to another place and you can just forget about sort of your daily life for a bit. Yeah, well, that's a great recommendation, something that you can do offline. But I will throw in one more Le Carre one, which I just thought of, which is the BBC adaptations of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People starring Alec Guinness as George Smiley. Those are incredible. They're, they're, they are almost like switching off because they are so slow. No, nothing like this would ever get made now. There are, you know, minutes and minutes go by <laughs> when nothing happens or George Smiley just walks around and there's no music, there's no nothing. And um, so that's almost as good as, as British going TV at its best. There we go. Exactly. Okay, listen, we've talked for too long. I'm, I'm looking at uh, Christina, our producer, on the Zoom screen and thinking of all the pain we've inflicted on her over the year and are now inflicting uh, again. <laughs> she has to edit this down. So, Reem, Matt, thanks very much. Have a great holiday. See you in the new year. Happy New Year. Joyeux Noël, Happy New Year, and let's all get some rest. 
Now, just before we go, some heartfelt thanks. Despite an incredibly difficult year, our podcast community has grown even bigger this year. So thanks for listening. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for the constructive criticism. And thanks also to a group of listeners who joined us for some virtual drinks online earlier this week. Maybe we'll get to do it in person in 2021. In the meantime, if we've helped you get through 2020 in any way at all, we are more than delighted. We'd also like to thank our political reporters for contributing to the podcast. We did a quick count and estimate that you heard from 34 of them from our pan-European newsroom, representing a range of policy fields, countries and perspectives. Now, before we go, here's a little flavour of what you don't normally hear when we put the podcast together. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So let's just do that. Let's just jump in. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, you're gonna have to bear with me for one, one moment. Batteries. Lily, welcome to our, our weekly comedy the, show. I can't wait for the end of your edition. Starring Matt. Uh-uh. Uses all this stuff. Uh-uh. Oh wow! Right. Okay. Got to make the most of it. Okay. <clears throat> I got a siren here now. Can anybody hear that? I can hear it. It's pretty damn loud. Are, are people uh, paying yeah. attention to the recommendations? People, right? people occasionally. Did you not see yeah. that they forward you something from a listener saying that we should just call it the Emily in Paris? I did see that. Yeah. 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 Oh, there you go. No. That was a, that I was a put my veto. That was there a reference a, to Reem. There's a veto here. Yeah. yeah. We, we a... operate via unanimity. These are the rules of the EU. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do that again. Yeah. Can yeah. you? Yeah, um, and Matt. Maybe fewer hand movements in the audio. Will come <laughs> well done, us. Yeah, there we go. And that is all the time we have for this episode and for this year. EU Confidential will be on a break over the holidays, but we'll be back on January the seventh. Also coming your way in January is a brand new podcast from Politico, Westminster Insider hosted by Jack Blanchard, our UK political editor and longtime author of the London Playbook newsletter. Keep listening just after we wrap up to hear a trailer for that show. But right now, we just want to wish you a happy and healthy holiday season. The greatest present you could give our team is a nice rating and review. Strictly speaking, that's probably not quite true. The greatest present you could give us would be some cold hard cash, but I'm pretty sure that would break a lot of ethical rules. So we'll be very happy to settle for a nice rating and review. We'd also be grateful if you could click subscribe or follow on whatever app you use to listen. That means you get every episode automatically every week and you'll be alerted when we kick off again in the new year. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to the hardest working and most patient producer in podcasting, Christina Gonzalez, who's put together almost every one of those 70 plus episodes I mentioned earlier and performs miracles on a weekly basis to make us sound as good as we do. And whenever and wherever you found us in 2020, thanks to you for listening. Come on. Yeah. Okay, and send. Coming soon, Westminster Insider, a podcast from Politico with me, Jack Blanchard.
Westminster Insider is going to give us a chance to go deep inside the stories that really matter to people who work in politics, to people who live and breathe politics. It gives a chance to take a step back, think a little bit more deeply about some of the ideas, some of the problems, some of the policy issues, and some of the people who make Westminster tick. Politics is all about people. Uh, and just on Pretty Patel, if I may, just for you, Secretary of State, what is the point in having an independent advisor on ministerial standards if the Prime Minister is just going to ignore that advice when it's one of his mates in the firing line. I want to look back at some of the most interesting episodes in political history and I want to look forwards about some of the problems that are going to be challenging politicians this year, next year and in the years to come coronavirus pandemic, Brexit negotiations that have gone on and on and on. I'm not sure there'll ever be another Dominic Cummings, but you can bet your life there'll be another special advisor, guru type figure in Downing Street who elevates themselves into this sort of mythical figure. Anyway, who says Dom's never coming back? Moving into 2021, everybody's looking at things afresh and thinking about how things can be done in a different way. We're going to have a huge economic challenge to overcome. We still have a huge public health emergency to solve. I mean, that's quite a flippant way of putting essentially a very big conundrum. Somewhere is there a balance to be had between saving lives and saving all of the economic society we've built up? This is not going to be a podcast where we just rail on the minister for paperclips each week and get them to trot out the government lines. And it's not going to be a podcast where you get three or four journalists sitting around in a room chewing the fat every week about the week's political news. Don't get me wrong, I love all that stuff. We want to do something different and find some more interesting voices and some more interesting characters that you maybe don't hear from every day. I'd be interested to know from both of you how far you'd go in terms of working with other parties around the country in a general election. It also gives you space just to take a step back and laugh at it sometimes, you know, the ridiculous absurdity of the place, the ridiculousness of some of the people making these decisions. I mean, have you seen the state of them? Just to be clear, I know nothing about podcasts. But how hard can it be, right? I mean, everyone's got a podcast these days. Like, even Jacob Rees-Mogg has a podcast. Coming soon, Westminster Insider, a podcast from Politico, with me, Jack Blanchard. Subscribe now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.